That dude over there, don't associate with him because he's a tax collector. That person over there is unclean. Boycott them. Get rid of them. Expel them. And then Jesus is right behind them being like, hey, can I go to your house for lunch? And aggravated them because they wanted to do what this passage suggests. When you recognize that a little bit of leaven impacts the whole batch, a little bit of mold impacts the cheese, they're eager to prune. They're eager to prune, but they don't understand the principle. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul addresses serious problems in the church that we still deal with in our day. And through this series, we're also learning how we can live for Christ even as we're tempted to live for ourselves. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now here's this week's message. If you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and grab those. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, I'd love for you, as all weeks, but especially this week, I'd love for you to have the text in front of you as we kind of march through it text by text. Having that in front of you is going to be a really good thing. We have finally arrived at the first of three chapters where the average pastor would rather get a root canal than preach on. Okay, so that's what we're entering into Yay, here we go, it's, it's gonna be a lot of fun. One of the things I think is really important for us to take note of though is almost every single time the early church sat down to read 1 Corinthians, they read it in its entirety. It is after all a letter. When you receive a letter, you read the whole letter, right? But one of the things that we do is we take chunks, we read that text, we say how does it apply to us in real life? But if we're not careful, we get a really truncated view on what the text is seeking to communicate to us. And I really don't want that to happen. It's kind of like the story of the four blind men who touched the elephant, right? One touches the trunk and says, it's a tree. The other touches the body and says, it's a blimp. The other touches the tail and they say, it's a snake. And in one sense, they're making really good observations, but in another sense, they're all wrong. So we have to do the really hard work of reminding ourselves of everything that we've learned already as we look at the appropriate text today. So just as a reminder, what we've been looking at for the last couple of months is 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, chapters 1 through 4, where we're ultimately realizing that we have a sure and certain hope in Jesus Christ that he has saved us from our sins on account of our faith in him, the substitute who appeases the wrath of God. And because of that, we now have unity with one another. And Paul is essentially saying, like, we need to get along. There might be some minor doctrinal differences that we have or differences in opinion and things of, of that nature. And when it comes to those things, we got to get along. It's like Paul is saying, come on, we're, we're children of the king, sons and daughters of the king. We got we to gotta get along with each other. And he even goes as far to say that the watching world should be able to observe that the Holy Spirit is amongst us when every tribe, tongue, and nation gathers together under God and there's unity. There's unity. And in the world, they're, they're saying, like, we can't find unity on any other thing. And here's this tiny little church filled with diverse people and they're unified. Even in their disagreements, they lean in as opposed to lean away. And the gospel is proclaimed through our unity. Well, as we look at chapter 5, it is the flip side of the same coin. It's not contrary 
to what we've been looking at for the last couple of months. It's the other side. And this is the way that I put it in your note sheet if you're taking notes with me. Every good family needs discipleship and discipline. Every good family needs discipleship and discipline. Parents know that without discipline, it's a disaster for our kids. It's a disaster. And so we need to make sure that we have both of these things at the forefront when it comes to living as a covenant community, living as a family. We can't have one or the other. People are not primarily made by ideas alone. So even as a church, we say good preaching and teaching is important. We have to be fully devoted to the word. But not only that, we need flesh and blood human beings to show us how to live cross-shaped lives with respect to our work, with respect to our sexuality, with respect to our marriage, our parenting, our finances, and our very lives. We need flesh and blood human beings to show us the way to disciple us, to mold us, to shape us, to keep us accountable to one another. We need that. Every human being on the planet needs accountability. But here's, here's the thing. We don't like it. We don't like it. Just ask your kids. Ask your kids. We don't like accountability. We don't like when mom and dad say, no, you can't do that. You can't have that. It's time for bed. You got to eat your vegetables. We don't like that. And even as adults, we might not be talking about vegetables, but we do not like accountability. And that's where Paul's going. And it's going to be fun. So here's one of the reasons why I think it's so challenging is because it flies in the face of some of our key cultural values. I've shared with you before, we're all like a fish in a fishbowl saying, what is wetness? You know, like, I don't know what it means to be wet. It's all I've ever known. And we live in a hyper-individualized culture. And because of that, we have two values that we just live in and immerse ourselves in all the time. The first value, I put this way, no one has the right to judge anyone else. No one has the right to judge anyone else. Here's, here's kind of what it sounds like. We say, how dare you judge me? This is between me and God. Back off. It's none of your business what I do on my own time, with my own money, with my sexuality, with my work. Like, back off. Back off. And we might not even recognize this as a cultural value. We might say, yeah, that resonates with me. Like, I, I don't want people in my business. Why don't you back off? It's not important to you. And, and yet, the Apostle Paul has already very clearly communicated to us that we are a covenant community. This is an idea that is on life support at the moment, not just in our broader culture, but, but even in our churches. The idea that we are grafted to one another like a family. So much so, the difference between flesh and blood family and believing family is that your flesh and blood family will be here for the duration of your earthly life, but your faith family you will have for the rest of eternity. That's how significant it is. And so what we're trying to do as a church is to invoke these spiritual realities to say we will be accountable to one another. But it's hard. It's so difficult. And yet another worldview is more oriented. It's, it's not only you don't have the right to judge me, but here's the second one. What I would just call the right to privacy. The right to privacy. 
It's interesting how we look at this even within our broader culture. Those on the left side of the aisle, they might say something like, you have no right to judge what I do in the bedroom. That's the left, right? And those on the right are saying, you have no right to judge what I do with my pocketbook. And what I find so interesting is what are the two topics that we would rather get a root canal than talk about in the church? Our sexuality and our money. These are the topics that we don't want to talk about. And then Paul says, you know what? We're going there. That's what we're going to talk about. And it makes us wince. So let's just name it and say, you know what? I'm so glad I'm not Justin this morning preaching on that text. It's my life. It's between me and God. Back off. Back off. And so Paul says, for the covenant community, no, there is not an inalienable right to privacy. And yes, there are times in which we as Christians are called to make judgments on other believers, but for reasons you might not expect. And we'll get into that. That's what this text is saying to us in the fishbowl that we live in today. And we go, ooh, gross. So if you got your Bible, chapter 5, verse 1, here's what it says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, And of a kind that even pagans, that's non-believers, people who aren't Christians, do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So here's the case study. Here's the story. Some guy who apparently um, has a lot of clout in the community. Maybe he um, gives a lot to the budget. Maybe he has a lot of influence. Maybe he's a a really important person. For whatever reason, he is uh, living or sleeping with his father's wife we don't know the circumstances we don't know if maybe maybe his father has passed away and he's kind of thinking about the old testament levitical law in which if a brother passes away and there's a widow the other brother would marry that person he's like well it's my dad's wife but i'm just going to get married to her but it's not his mom it's his stepmom we that's all we know we don't know the circumstances of it but i think we can all agree that this is something that isn't right Even the pagans, even unbelieving Greeks and Romans are saying, ooh, gross. Like, who does that? And you know it's a little bit strange when the church has uh, a little bit more comfortable views than even the world does with respect to sexuality. And that's what's going on in this little church. And then notice the strange response of the church. Verse 2. And you are proud. You're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? So Paul gives his response to this little church. This this little church is going, my goodness, we're so open-minded. We're so accepting. We're so loving. And rather than be concerned with the behavior of this young man, they're literally proud of themselves with their response to this man about how loving and how accepting they are. And then we pick up here in verse 3, and Paul gives what you might just call tough love. For my part, even though I am not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. Yikes! Like, he's not even physically present. He hasn't sat down and talked to this guy. He's not there, and he makes judgments? On this guy? 
Why? On, on what basis is he doing this? What's his motivation? How can he do that? Hang on to those questions. Look with me at verse 4. It says this. So, when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to who? What's the word? To Satan? What? What's going on? So, what is the motivation of Paul here? Is he like saying, like, give this man to Satan, he will become demon-possessed? That's, that's not what's going on. He's saying, if there is someone who is living in unrepentant sin, and that's an important, important how I just noted that, we're not talking about someone who has fallen into temptation or is seeking to walk in obedience with God, but like all of us, sometimes we fall, and when we follow, fall, we endeavor to fall forward. This is someone who is dealing with one of the crystal clear teachings of Scripture, and they know that it's wrong, and they're just saying the rules don't apply to me. And they're living in unrepentant sin. That, that's what Paul is addressing here. And it means that Christians are to put that person out of fellowship with the covenant community. And that's hard for us. That's hard for us. So if you're taking notes this morning, consider uh, writing down 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. And if you have Bibles, uh, I invite you to join me there. I'm going to read this text. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation. It's near the end of your Bible. Find 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5, verse 19. So here's what it says. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So here's what you have to know. We say around here that when you become a follower of Jesus, he forgives your sins, he adopts you into his family, he grafts you into his inheritance, and then he sets a table before you as part of the faith family, the covenant community. But in those instances in which someone is walking in disobedience with God and they have no desire to walk in the ways of God according to scripture, then that person is to be let go. And that person is already walking in darkness because we believe that when you become a Christian, you, walk, you used to be in darkness, in the kingdom of darkness, and now you are in the kingdom of life and light. But this person has not yet made those commitments to follow Jesus in obedience with respect to every aspect of their lives. So you're letting them go. You're letting them go. But what's the motivation? Why would we do this? Notice the reason in verse 5. Paul says, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that circle, highlight, underline, his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So here's the way I put it in your note sheet. The purpose is restoration, not punishment. The purpose is restoration, not punishment. What Paul is pointing out here is that it is never, ever loving to overlook self-destructive behavior. It is never loving to overlook self-destructive behavior. An intervention is always the loving thing to do, but for a variety of reasons, we don't want to do those things. We're tempted to overlook those things. So let's put a little bit of meat on this for a second. Maybe one example you can think of, which is a really challenging one. Let's say 
you have a spouse who comes home drunk most nights. And every now and then they fall asleep on the floor in a pool of their own vomit. Now you might want to expel them from the house. You might want to say, get out. Or another response you might have is because you love your spouse, maybe you clean up the vomit. Maybe you take off their clothes and you put on new clothes, you put them on the couch, you put a blanket over top of them and you got water and Alka-Seltzer there for them in the morning. You just clean everything because you love your spouse so much. But here, here's the question I wanna ask you. Is it possible that the most loving thing that we could do in that instance is to leave them on the floor? And they wake up the next morning with vomit all over themselves and they realize just how far they have fallen. And maybe, just maybe, that will lead them to repentance. But that's, that's hard for us because what, what do we want to do? We want to help the people that we love. We always want to draw them back in. But is it possible that we enable the very people that we love? And so what Paul is saying, don't enable them. Do not enable the people that you love. And what it, it's hard because it means letting them wake up in a pile of their own vomit. So again, look at verse two. I think this is so important. He says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? Into mourning. I think that's a clue as to how we should posture ourselves with respect to disciplining people that we love. With tears in our eyes and with palms open. That's always the posture that we need to have. And if that's not difficult enough, Paul then explains why sin like this cannot be ignored. If your Bibles are still open, look at verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? So in the Old Testament, leaven was a word for yeast. That's what it means. It just means uh, yeast. And he simply points out, when you put a little bit of yeast in bread, it impacts the whole batch, all of the dough. We just had uh, pizza last night in our family. We have pizza movie night every Saturday. So Julie, she gets the dough ready. She puts the yeast in. And what happens? The whole thing, the whole thing is impacted by it. Not just a corner, not just a piece. All of it is impacted. But if you don't bake bread or you don't make your own homemade pizza, maybe another way of thinking about this, which comes from pastor and author Andrew Wilson, he says this, a little bit of mold spreads through the whole cheese. What does that mean? What is Paul addressing? Yeast was often used in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament as a symbol of sin. A symbol of sin. How when it touches one area, it impacts everything else. Everything else. And by the way, that's what I find so remarkable about this passage. If you're taking notes, you can consider writing down uh, Leviticus 18, verse 8, Leviticus 20, verse 17, and Deuteronomy 27, verse 19. And in all three of those verses, it says that incest is detestable to God. Right? So Paul could have just kind of pulled one of those verses out and he quoted it here and said, this is the reason why this man should not be sleeping with his mother-in-law. It's wrong. It's detestable. And yet he doesn't do that. Do you know where he goes? He goes not to the law, but to the gospel. To the gospel. The story of Passover in the book of Exodus, in which the ten plagues are performed, and the tenth and final one is the most significant. 
the angel of death passes over all of Egypt and the people of Israel are commanded by God to take a slaughtered lamb and then to take the blood of the lamb and to put the blood on the doorposts of their homes. And for any person, whether they were Egyptian or Israelite, if they had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the door, then the angel of death would pass over them and they would be spared. They would be delivered. They would be set free. And the next morning, the next morning they are set free. And the commandment from God is do not put any yeast in your bread because you left the people of Egypt in haste. And it was a sign of obedience. That, that's the whole point that you should see this. Yeast not in the dough is a symbol of the obedience of God's people. Yeast in the dough is a symbol of sin. Someone who said, you know what, the rules don't apply to me. And Paul is bringing to mind the gospel message right here in this story once again. And so that makes two things abundantly clear that we have to understand as we move forward. Number two in your notes, Paul is addressing covenant Christians, not unbelievers, and Paul is addressing unrepentant sin, not sin in the main. That is crucially important with respect to this topic. So even here this morning, there's, there's a couple different groups of people. Some of you here are professing, are professing Christians, so you are covenant community members of Gateway Community Church, and you've made some commitments yourself. You have resolved wholeheartedly to walk in obedience to the best of your ability. You have permitted the elders to hold you accountable, and you're committed to holding one another accountable. So that's one group. There's another group of you who you're not um, members of Gateway, but you may be Christians who are members of other churches. And then there might even be some of you here who are kicking the tires on Christianity and you're not so sure if Jesus is the Lord of life. But the conversation we're having this morning is with respect to professing Christians who are members of Gateway or members of any particular church in which you are making covenant commitments to them and them to you. And so I think that's really important as we have this conversation. We're not saying go and be watchdogs for Jesus wherever you go. You know, and if you see sin somewhere, you better point it out. You better just say, bad, 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 bad. No, what we're talking about is, are you a part of the faith family? Are you in a covenant community with them? Kind of like your nuclear family. The commitments that you've made to them are significant and separate from commitments you've made to other Christians or other people in your life. And the same rule applies here. And so Paul is addressing any situation in which there is unrepentant sin on any crystal clear teaching of Scripture. That's what he's addressing. So why is Paul so serious about this? Why is he so serious about unrepentant sin in the camp? He tells you because he says it's contagious. It affects the whole batch. And that's where he goes next in verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb. There it is again. He's bringing us back to Exodus. We need to think like Jewish Christians. The Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with old bread leavened with malice and with wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and 
truth. So once again, Paul uses this beautiful Old Testament word picture to communicate as clearly as he can the principle, which I put this way. Unrepentant sin in the camp is just like yeast in the dough. Unrepentant sin in the camp is just like yeast in the dough. It's just like mold in the cheese. It's not isolated. It affects everyone. And this is a really, really hard teaching for us because, again, we live in an individualized society. We're autonomous. I determine what is true for me. You can determine what is true for you. But stay out of my business. And yet Paul has something to say about that. And because this is so countercultural, I want to give you an example of this from Scripture. So here's where we're going to go. Joshua chapter 7, verses 1 to 12. This is a fascinating story in which the people of Israel are just about to go into the promised land. God has given them the promised land. And the very first thing that they have to do is go to Jericho. Big, huge walls. Powerful army. And God says, I've delivered them into your hands. All you got to do is march around the walls for seven days, and then I want you to go do-do-do-do on your horn, and everything's going to fall down. They obey. Everything falls down, just as God said, and then they ransack the city. But God commands them. He says, all the loot that you get from Jericho, I want you to take it all and put it in the temple. Because this is a principle of Scripture. Always the first fruits of our offerings go to God. Not the leftovers, the first fruits go to God. So they take everything... And they put it in the temple, except for one dude, Achan. Achan said, the rules don't apply to me. You know, I know they apply to everyone else, but I'm special. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a little bit extra. No one's going to miss this. I'm going to take some gold, some fine linens. I'm going to bring them to my house, hide them under my tent. Nobody's going to know. The next day, the people of Israel, they go to the next town, this tiny little town called Ai. It's got no walls. It has no army. It's not known for its military force. It's a bunch of humble farmers. And God said, I have delivered the promised land into your hands. Go and take it. And so they run to Ai saying, we have the power of God behind us. And they enter into battle and they lose. 36 Israelite men are put to death on that day. They all run back with their tail between their legs. And they go, God, what's going on? What's happening? You, you promised us this land. Like, what's going on? And then God says, you have sinned. You have sinned. Here's what he says. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. And they're all looking around saying, what did we do? And what's the answer? Achan took stuff. And Achan's sin impacted everybody. Impacted everyone. And that's the principle that we're looking at today. We are the body of Christ. We are together the temple of God. That is why uh, Paul repeatedly says, you are one body, many parts. You are the temple of God. And then even Peter says this. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. That's all of us together. We're all in the same batch together. Now, the passage continues with a major misunderstanding that we need to take note of. And it's interesting because that misunderstanding 
is the exact same thing that we're struggling with today more than 2,000 years later. So look at verse 9 with me. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So stop right there. I've mentioned this already. 1 Corinthians is not 1 Corinthians. It's at least 2nd, maybe 3rd Corinthians. But we don't have those letters. But we do know, based on this, that Paul has already talked to them about the topic of sexual immorality because Corinth is filled with sexual immorality. So he keeps addressing it. But they had some questions. And one of the questions is, well, if we, if we don't, if we can't associate with sexually immoral people and we live in Corinth, then does that mean we can't associate with anyone? And so he clarifies. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister and is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. But what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those on the inside? God will judge the outside. And then he quotes Deuteronomy, expel the wicked person from among you. Now, notice a couple of things that this little church got wrong that, that we also tend to get wrong too. To be honest, what is our temptation with respect to this topic? We, we often get things exactly the opposite. We're most tempted to judge non-Christians and we're most tempted to either overlook or hide from the just judgments that we need to make within the covenant community. Isn't that the case? We look out over there with our binoculars, and then inside we, we overlook the sin in the camp. And that is what Paul is addressing here. So we get it backwards. The way I put it in your note sheet is, don't judge non-Christians by Christian standards. Don't judge non-Christians by Christian standards. They're not followers of Jesus. They haven't been transformed into the image and the likeness of Jesus. Why would they follow his righteous rules? And so here, here's a way of thinking about this. With respect to how we address sin in the camp or sin in the world, we need to follow this progression. Number one, we need to be spending almost all of our time using our mirror Bibles and repenting of the sin in our own life, seeking to walk in obedience with God. And from there, number two, we also need to hold one another accountable as a community of faith. And then number three, we need to observe the world but to let God judge it. To observe the world, but to let God judge it. It doesn't mean that it's not sin. It, oftentimes it is sin that we see in the world. But God is saying, let me judge it. Let me be the one to judge it. Not you, I'll do it. But what do we do? I think more often than not, here's, here's the flip of all of that. Most of our anger and judgment is pointed at the world. And then we gossip about our brothers and sisters and at the end of it, we just don't have any time left to look in the mirror. Ouch. But that's the challenge that we have as Christians. Because of our sin nature, the traitor within, that is our natural inclination to do that. And Paul is saying, this is not new. There's nothing new under the sun. Christians have been struggling with this for 2,000 years. But what I'm telling you is we got to get back to the basics. 
Keep your mirror Bibles in front of you. Hold one another accountable in a loving, Christ-like family relationship and observe the world, but leave it to God to judge it. That's the focus that Paul wants for Christians today. So here's what I'd like to do for the remainder of the time that we have this morning. Uh, Like we've done before, I'd like to kind of just picture ourselves rolling up our sleeves and asking, what does it look like, practically speaking, to do this in our life? What does it look like to hold this sort of perspective, this worldview with respect to my work, my finances, uh, my relationships, and my life group with my friends, with my family members, and my marriage? How do I do this in my life? What does it look like to do this really, really well? So we've looked at three principles already. I'll remind you. The purpose of discipline is restoration, not punishment. That's number one. Number two, Paul's addressing the unrepentant sin of Christians, not sin in the main and not the sin of the world. And number three, don't judge non-Christians by Christian standards. And here's the next one I want to lay at your feet. According to Paul, our job is to influence our world, not to isolate from it, or to wage war against it. And this is the reason why Paul has to clarify from his first letter to this one saying, I didn't mean at all for you not to associate with the world. I don't mean that at all. You need to infiltrate the world. You need to influence the world. After all, the greatest mission that every single Christian has is the great commission to go and to make disciples of all nations. That is the mission of the church. And so I did not mean at all for you to not associate with non-Christians, even if they're being sexually immoral, even if they're far from God, especially if they're far from God. They need the influence of Christians in their life. But whenever we say something like, we gotta win the culture war, at all costs we gotta win the war, for the sake of our culture, for the sake of our kids, we gotta win the war, then we're missing out on the Great Commission, which isn't to war against our culture, but to influence it to infiltrate it and to redeem it, to bring shalom into that space, peace, justice, and harmony. So what does that look like? Well, I think any time in which we have a concern about something that's happening in society, we should try to infiltrate it, not to boycott it, not to try and run away from it. I think about the Pharisees. They're they're masters at this, right? Every single time we see the Pharisees, they're trying to condemn something. Right? That woman over there, don't associate with her because she's a prostitute. That dude over there, don't associate with him because he's a tax collector. That person over there is unclean. Boycott them. Get rid of them. Expel them. And then Jesus is right behind them being like, hey, can I go to your house for lunch? It aggravated them. Because they wanted to do what this passage suggests. When you recognize that a little bit of leaven impacts the whole batch... A little bit of mold impacts the cheese. They're eager to prune. They're eager to prune, but they don't understand the principle. The purpose of letting someone go who's living in unrepentant sin is so that they might be turned back to repentance. But their desire is just to expel the ungodly, to get rid of them, to throw them in the trash. And they do not have the heart of God. So what, what might that look like for you? Let's say you, you're concerned with the state of uh, public school. My encouragement for you would not be to expel it or to boycott it. Get in it. Teach it. Become an administrator of it. Get on the board. Impact it. Influence it. 
Or let's say you say, you know what, the state of Hollywood is just terrible these days. You know, going to hell in a handbasket. Then go to school and become the best director, the best grip, the best actor, the best producer that you can be. Influence it, redeem it. Or let's say you have concerns with respect to the industry that you work in, real estate or farming or agriculture or construction. Get on a board. Impact that industry for the sake of the kingdom of God. Don't boycott it. Don't run from it. Don't wage war against it. Get on the inside. Make an influence. Be a trustworthy person to other people around you. Rise in the ranks and impact it for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's the mission that Paul wants to lay at your feet with respect to how we interact with the world. Now here's the second and perhaps even more difficult question. What does it look like to do discipline in the church or with respect to people that we love? I put it this way. If the purpose is always restoration and not punishment, which we've talked about already, then I need to have the fruit of the Spirit. I need to have the fruit of the Spirit Here's a way of thinking about this. If ever I am angry and trying to punish you, I do not have the spirit of Jesus. If ever you're angry and you're trying to punish someone else, you do not have the spirit of Jesus. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Any time in which we're dealing with disciplined cases, it should be a season and a time, just like Paul has expressed, where there is tears in our eyes and our hands are, our palms are open. The idea that we find in scripture when it comes to discipleship is kind of like Jesus leading us as a covenant community in the wilderness. We're going here, we're going here, we're going here, we're going here, we're going here. Jesus says, come and we go. And maybe, just maybe, as we're out in the wilderness together, there is someone who no longer wants to walk with Jesus. But Jesus is still on the move. And with tears in our eyes, we're begging them, come with us, come with us, come with us. And they say, you know what? I I don't want to follow his righteous rules. I don't want to walk with Jesus anymore. And we're begging them to keep coming with us on the journey, but they won't and they leave and they're isolated. That's the desire of our hearts with respect to discipline. It is never to prune. It is never to prune. It is always to draw them back to repentance. But we have some challenges, don't we? There's two twin pitfalls when it comes to discipline that we need to be wary of. The first one is, might, like you might just call it anger. Right? Undignified anger or zeal for righteousness in which you want to beat someone over the head because you think their sin is gross. But you don't have the love of Jesus in you. You just have hatred of neighbor. And on the other side, you might just call it self-preservation. And that's where you say, you know what? I don't want this person to be angry at me. I don't want them to shoot the messenger. And so I'm just going to be loving. I'm going to be accepting. But you don't really have your neighbor's heart in mind. You don't love your neighbor, you just love yourself. And that's why you don't want to have the hard conversation. And both of these, Paul says, are wrong. And so the image I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, this is what I want you to think about. Someone that you love, they're in their car, they're about to drive off a cliff. What's the posture that you're going to have? You are not going to look at them and say, you idiot, and throw stones at the car. Like, just someone who, like, they have no clue. You're not going to have that posture because you love the person in the car. But nor are you going to say, you know what, love is love. I'm just going to be accepting. We'll be kind. Be like, bye. (laughs) You're not going to do that because you love the person in the vehicle. What are you going to do? If you love them and they're about to jump off a cliff or drive off a cliff, what are you going to do? 
You're going to beg them. You're going to plead with them. Turn back. Hit the pause button. Hit the brakes. And even if they say, you bigoted religious slob, you know, you small-minded person, that will not deter you from begging them to turn because you love them, even if it comes at the expense of the way that they treat you, even if they shoot the messenger because you love them and you want them to turn because you want what's best for them. Paul says this is the way. This is the way to do this. That you always have in mind the interest of the other before the interest of the self. And that leads to the last point I want to lay at your feet. Beware of your own hypocrisy. You know that passage of scripture that gets misquoted all the time? Do not judge. Do not judge, do not judge. You know what's so interesting about that is the context of that passage from Jesus is exactly what Paul is talking about here. So first he says, do not judge, and then a couple of verses later he says this. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So hear this, Jesus is not saying don't make judgments. Paul is not saying don't make judgments. They're saying don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite. If we truly love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, we will seek to walk with him in obedience and love day by day. And if we truly love our neighbor as ourself, we will be willing to enter into that space even if it comes at the expense of your reputation. That you will have more in your heart the character of God than your reputation in the eyes of others. Because you love the person. So how is it possible for us to have this sort of perspective? To think this way? Because it's, it's easier said than done, right? Like, is anyone, anyone here, like, eager to get this started? Like, to start doing this? It's hard. So how can we have the right perspective? Well, Paul gives the answer. Over the course of the next nine weeks, we're going to talk about human sexuality and the Bible. And with respect to that topic, there's probably a little bit of angst, just as there is with this topic. But here's where he ends. And I want you to see this today because this is the verse we're going to keep returning to over the course of the next two months. And I want you to have it in mind today. Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is within you? Whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Paul wants you to see that the only way in which we can live this out faithfully with the right sort of posture is if we see ourselves in the story. That all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And if it were not for the intervening of Jesus, we would all perish. It is all grace. God wants you to see this. He wants your heart to be softened and molded by this so that you can take the plank out of your own eye and to consider going up to your neighbor and say, can I help you remove the speck from yours? But it will only happen if we have a vision of the gospel of Jesus and what it does to us. One final thing before we close. As we start our series next week, 
um, a couple of questions that have been asked to me a couple of times, so I just want to publicly address it. Some of you have asked, um, I have a friend or a family member who struggles with human sexuality. Is it safe for me to invite them? Here's what I'd like to say to you. As you have seen already with respect to this topic, Paul is talking to Christians. He's not, this is not an open forum letter. This is a, a letter to Christians. So I would say if your friend or family member or coworker is someone who has stepped over the line to follow Jesus and loves Jesus with their whole heart, I would say by all means, invite them and it will be a safe place. I'm, I'm hoping to speak with as much grace and compassion as possible with respect to this topic. So invite them, invite them. But if they're not a follower of Jesus, invite them to Easter. Invite them to Easter. Because as we've talked about already, if they're not a follower of Jesus, why would we have any expectation that they would follow Jesus' righteous rules? I, I just don't think that's the place to start. And so I ask that you be uh, praying for me as well as we get started into that series and that the Lord would do good work in his congregation. You've been listening to the latest message in our First Corinthians series, focused on learning godly solutions to the problem of sin in our lives. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.